Thank you for listening to this edition of the Notable Speeches podcast. Today, an address by New York Times columnist Ross Douthat, whose twice-weekly column covers religion, moral values, and, of course, politics. Mr. Douthat is also the author of several best-selling books, including Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics, published in 2012, and To Change the Church, Pope Francis and the Future of Catholicism, released in 2018. His forthcoming book is The Decadent Society, due for release this spring. Before joining the New York Times a decade ago, Mr. Douthat was a senior editor at The Atlantic. Ross Douthat has an interesting religious background. He was raised in Connecticut in a nominally Episcopalian family that later became involved in a Pentecostal church. The family then converted to Catholicism while Ross Douthat was a teenager. Today, he describes himself as a conservative Catholic. This address by Ross Douthat is titled, Secularism is Weak, with the subtitle, Catholicism's Crisis, Catholicism's Opportunity. But as you'll hear, much of what he discusses applies to American Protestantism as well. Here is Ross Douthat, recorded in September 2019 at an event hosted by the Catholic Archdiocese of Denver, Colorado. This will be a, hopefully not too scattered talk, but it will leap around a bit. Um, let's start with the, the title itself, Secularism is Weak. And I want to give two sort of narrow examples of the specific thing that I mean by that, and then I'll return to them and to that larger issue at the end of the talk. Um, the first example is a kind of dark example, and it comes actually from the pages of The Atlantic, the magazine for which I worked for many years. And a couple of years ago, The Atlantic ran a really good, interesting piece about the revival of exorcism, the right of exorcism in particularly the Roman Catholic Church. It touched on some other areas, but it was mostly Catholic-focused. And it was an interesting piece that was, you know, troubling and probably slightly bad for the soul to read, as almost all too detailed accounts of exorcism seem to me to be. But it was particularly interesting because it came at a moment when so much media coverage of religion was focused on, in the particular case of Catholicism, debates within the church, the shadow of the sex abuse scandal, and then beyond Catholicism, the general weakening of institutional Christianity, the crisis of the religious right that helped lead to the rise of Trump, the rise of the so-called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people with no religious affiliation. So you have this meta-narrative of, if not religion's retreat, at least institutional religion's crisis and decline. And then right up against it, you have a story that, oh, by the way, Lots more people are worried that they're possessed by demons and are asking Catholic priests for exorcisms. So that's one example, one story. Uh, and then the other one is a personal one, which is, comes from my own childhood. I grew up in a family that if you just looked at our family and did some demographic determinism, you would have said that our family would have become secularized basically, over the course of my own lifetime. My parents were both Ivy League graduates. They both belonged to sort of lukewarm mainline Protestant traditions. We were lukewarm Episcopalians when I was a child. We lived in the Northeast, the most secular part of the country, with the possible exception of the Pacific Northwest. I went to, you know, mostly politically liberal and secular private schools. And 
again, just plug us into a spreadsheet and you would have said, the parents would be moderately religious, I will be a Christmas and Easter Protestant, and my children won't be religious at all. But instead, when I was a kid, my mother suffered from a lot of chronic illnesses, and like a lot of people with chronic illness, she went looking for unorthodox cures in the worlds of health food and alternative medicine, and she had a friend who said, why don't you come to a charismatic faith healing service? There's this woman whose name was literally Grace, who held faith healing services in high school auditoriums in southern Connecticut. So my mother went to this healing service as a, you know, moderately religious but basically skeptical person. And this woman named Grace prayed over her on a carpeted floor, much like the carpeted floor here. And my mother fell down and had an intense charismatic religious experience that totally redirected our entire life and led to my eventual position as the uh, reactionary Catholic columnist for the New York Times. Um, <laughs> And I think both of those case studies, one personal to my family history and one a story from the secular media, are examples of a basic reality, which is that secularism's fundamental weakness and the, the limiting principle on secularization is the fact that metaphysical realities, some of them positive and some of them negative, keep breaking into human affairs, no matter how secularized your society is getting. And as long as that's the case, not necessarily Catholicism or Christianity, but religion and religious experience will always return in some form. There is no permanent secularization. So that's the framing theory of the case that I want to offer. But now let's talk about the Catholic crisis, because the crisis in Catholicism is not unique to Catholicism alone. The story of all of institutional Christianity in the Western world over the last 50 or 60 years is a story, again, not of the complete rise of atheism and the triumph of Voltaire and Richard Dawkins over superstition and ignorance, but a story of cultures that were traditionally Christian in lots of different ways, slipping and sliding away from an institutionalized practice of the faith. And this trend has deep roots in modernity, it has deep roots in the Enlightenment and industrialization and a host of other forces. But if you go back to the 1950s and 1960s, you can see a moment when institutional religion seemed to be much sturdier and more influential than it was today, and a moment when the major Christian churches, Catholicism above all, seemed to have passed through some of the fires of modernity and emerged not unscathed, but still strong and resilient and vital and capable of being deeply influential players in the culture and politics of the Western world. That, I think, is a fair description of the post-war world of Western Europe and Christian democracy and the United States in the era of Fulton Sheen and Billy Graham and Martin Luther King. And it's not a description of the world we live in today. And somewhere between the late 50s and early 1960s and the present, institutional Christianity went through a series of sort of rolling crises that didn't destroy the churches, didn't eliminate Christianity's influence in the Western world, but weakened it in dramatic and substantial ways that we're still living with and living through 
today. Um, and in one of the books that David kindly mentioned, Bad Religion, which I wrote about seven years ago, which means it's at least 50% out of date, but I'll give you the 50% that isn't, I think, I argued that you could look at four big factors that drove all of institutional Christianity's decline. The first factor, the one that people in my profession tend to be especially concerned with, is the sexual revolution and the huge gap that the sexual revolution opened up between sort of middle-class bourgeois sexual ethics and New Testament sexual morality. That prior to the 1960s, there was a sense that the demands of Christian sexual morality might be a little too stringent and a little too unrealistic, but there was a basic core of Christian teaching around chastity and monogamy and marriage that made not just spiritual and moral, but also practical sense. And somewhere in the 60s and 70s, between the birth control pill and the divorce revolution and a host of other forces, that assumption went away. And the new assumption became that either that New Testament sexual ethics were just an impossible fantasy that human beings couldn't live up to, or that they were actively punitive, patriarchal, misogynist, sex-negative, homophobic, and so on, down a list of critiques. And much of the conflict within Christian churches, and certainly within our own Catholic church since that era, has been around how exactly the churches are supposed to adapt to that new reality. And I think it's fair to say that neither conservatives nor liberals have come up with a strategy that has been deeply effective at re-evangelizing a culture convinced that Christian sexual ethics are totally out of date. There's been sort of attempts to adapt and capitulate to the new sexual culture. There have been attempts to resist or challenge it. And they've had specific successes or partial successes. But the general trend has been in a fairly negative direction. So there's sex, and then there's money. There's the reality that the Western world in the post-war era became richer than any civilization in human history, and rich societies tend, for reasons I think amply spelled out in the New Testament, to become slightly more godless societies and have some of the difficulties of the camel and the needle's eye. And wealth doesn't present, I think, quite the same kind of tension points that sex does. It doesn't create these sort of list of issues, divorce and same-sex marriage and so on that people fight over, but it creates a general cultural spirit of we don't need your ascetic religion with its idea that the poor will inherit the kingdom of God and all the rest. We need a more comfortable spirituality that justifies upward mobility and the accumulation of wealth and so on. And that is partly how American Christianity went from the age of Billy Graham and Fulton Sheen to the age of Joel Osteen and Oprah Winfrey, which, again, is not secularization. Joel Osteen and Oprah Winfrey are not secular figures, but they are figures who embody a kind of weakening of traditional Christian forms and their replacement with something somewhat different. So there's sex, there's money, there's communication technology and all the revolutions ushered in by television and eventually the internet, all of which feed a kind of spiritual relativism, a sense among people that the world is such a big and dizzying and complicated place that your particular community, your particular communion can't possibly be the one true church. 
And even if God is real and spiritual realities exist, it makes much more sense to have a kind of refrigerator magnet version of theology where you pick from different traditions and craft sort of internal religious poems that make sense for your life, your everyday realities, rather than submitting yourself to a specific tradition that after all has to just be culturally contingent and time bound and so on. Um, and then finally, especially in the United States, there's the influence of political polarization. The reality that as political polarization has become more significant and as people's political identities have become more important, it's become harder and harder for churches to find a place to stand that's independent of political identity. And so you have a permanent religious right and a weaker but permanent religious left in which politics are seen as sort of the primary thing and religion is seen as the handmaiden of politics, and people who don't like, like Republicans decide that, well, you know, they don't want to identify with Christianity because Christianity is identified with the Republican Party, and a world where Methodists didn't want their daughters to marry Catholics gives way to a world where nobody cares what religion the person your daughter marries is, but Democrats don't want their daughters to marry Republicans, and vice versa, which is, in fact, in polling data, now the world we live in. So those, I think, are sort of the big general forces weakening all of the traditional forms of religious life. And then in the case of Roman Catholicism specifically, I think you can add on Catholic-specific issues, one of which is the fact that Catholicism had particularly, arguably, in immigrant communities in the United States, but really across the Western world in general, Catholicism had built up sort of thick cultures that were in various ways counter-modern. If you think of Quebec prior to the 1960s and Ireland prior to the 1980s and 90s and ethnic Catholic communities in the US down to the middle of the 20th century, Catholicism was apparently more robust in many ways than a lot of Protestant churches heading into the 1960s. But somehow the dissolving effects of cultural and economic change in the 60s and 70s and the incredibly intense turn towards cultural individualism made that Catholic model in certain ways more unsustainable than the more sort of easygoing, seeker-sensitive approaches that, for instance, evangelical churches had maintained and increasingly developed from the 60s and 70s onward. So a lot of what looked like Catholic institutional strength prior to the 60s turned out to be a kind of brittleness. And a lot of evangelical and Pentecostal churches turned out to be, at least for the period of the 1970s, 80s, and 1990s, more adaptable to the new religious reality. So the cathedral and the parish seemed much more successful in certain ways in 1945, but by 1985 or 1995, it was the megachurch model that was more successful, and the Catholic parish model had essentially dissolved in certain ways. So that's one issue particular to Catholicism. And in the second issue particular to Catholicism is the, just the reality of the sex abuse crisis. And obviously there are sex abuse crises in every 
Christian church, as there are in every religious body, as there are in just about every institution, from Hollywood to New England prep schools. But again, the very strength of Catholicism, the fact that it had this effective hierarchy, this centralized form of religious government, and the fact that there was this sort of strength and solidarity and loyalty within Catholicism that was stronger than in many other churches and denominations meant that the worst of the sex abuse crisis was that much worse in Catholicism. It was easier in certain ways for networks of abusers to manipulate the workings of the inner workings of the hierarchy, to manipulate the loyalty of Catholic parents and the Catholic laity. And it was, and because the church was centralized, it was a riper target for lawsuits and litigation. And so there was both the scandal itself was worse, and then the aftermath of the scandal, which of course is still ongoing, was more damaging to the institutional church. And then finally, Catholicism had, and I think it's, it's an arguable question to what extent this was a weakness, but because of Catholicism's size and strength and capaciousness and vitality, the argument about how to respond to the new world that the 1960s ushered in, it didn't, the, the different factions remained together within the same church in a way that was less likely to happen in Protestant bodies. It was easier for Protestant bodies to divide on a small scale and eventually on a larger scale and have, you know, well, we have a church over here that's taking a liberal approach on this, these issues and a church over here that's taking a conservative approach on these issues. And while Catholicism has had many schisms in the past and will possibly have more schisms in the future, in the particular period from 1960 to the present, with the exception, with the arguable exception of the SSPX and Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, there was no overt schism, and instead, the conflict over how to respond and adapt to the changed world just sort of raged permanently within the church's walls. And conservative Catholics, I think, convinced themselves that this conflict was decisively resolved in their favor in the pontificate of John Paul II, and maybe even more so in the pontificate of Benedict XVI. And I think that conservative confidence has not been borne out by events. And if there's anything that's been made clear in the pontificate of Francis, it's that Catholicism is deeply, deeply divided in many of the same ways that it's been divided since the 60s and 70s, notwithstanding the efforts of all the popes over those periods. This basic uncertainty about what Catholicism should be in the modern world, how it should adapt, whether it can change, how much it can change, whether it should change back. That argument has just persisted and persisted and persisted in ways that, again, reflect a real vitality in certain ways, reflect a reality that people don't want to leave Catholicism, which is a good thing, something Catholics should be in favor of. But it also has an inevitably negative effect on Catholicism's ability to witness to the wider world because there seems to be no clear agreement on what Catholicism even is. Um, so that, I think, is a, that's an attempt, you know, to sort of skating around pretty quickly to tell a story of crisis. There is a general crisis of traditional religions encounter with late 20th century modernity and all its trends, and then there are specific issues within Catholicism that 
if they don't make things worse for Catholics, at least create a particularly Catholic flavor of the crisis that I'm talking about. So what is then Catholicism's opportunity? So glad you asked. Um, it starts by thinking about what is then the religious landscape that these changes have ushered in? What's going on, at least in American religion, right now? So if you go back 50 or 75 years in American religion, you would say that it made sense to treat American religion as fundamentally divided by denominations. That there's, you know, sort of a Protestant world and a Catholic world, and then within Protestantism there are particular different Protestant worlds that are sort of in tension and competition with one another. And there is to some extent a kind of scoffing secular segment of the population um, concentrated on the East Coasts and occasionally embodied by H.L. Mencken's sneering forays into the heartland. But basically, America is a country with a lot of Christian churches, and the divisions between those Christian churches are the big divisions that matter in American religious life. That's the world of the past. In the world of the present, I think it's much more reasonable to divide American religion and American religious worldviews into three big categories, um, or three at least moderate-sized categories. And the first category is, I think, the closest you get to real secularism, although I don't think it goes all the way. Um, but we'll call it the secular world picture. It's the world picture that prevails in most universities, in many elite occupations, in a lot of the commanding heights of culture, in the legal academy, maybe at certain major American newspapers. I can't speak to that specifically. Um, but it's a worldview that is not, it's not zealously atheistic. It's not militantly hostile to religion. It includes some zealous atheists and militant anti-theists. It includes some of the Richard Dawkins types. But, you know, fundamentally, it can be favorable to religion in certain ways. It's hostile to sort of moral traditionalism in religion, but it thinks that religion can serve social goods. Um, it likes the religious element in, for instance, the civil rights movement. It admires the role that religious figures can play in public debates. And it's not completely closed to the idea that there might be some kind of supreme being and some kind of arc of history bending towards progress and justice. But it is incredibly skeptical of the idea of specific revelation. It's incredibly skeptical of the idea of religious authority. And it's incredibly skeptical of the supernatural and the mystical and metaphysical in any kind of literal way. It has room for, you know, sort of mind-body speculation and the virtues of meditation for brain chemistry and so on, but that's about as far as it goes. If there's a god, it's Einstein's god. It's at most a deist god. And the main effects of religion are how religion affects politics and how it reflects community life and so on, and that's what really matters. So that's the secular world picture. And it's the smallest of the three, but pretty culturally influential because of its concentration among the elite. Then the second world picture is the one that has really gained ground with the decline of the tradi traditional churches. And this is what you might just call, I think it's fair to just call it the spiritual world picture. 
Um, I would call it the spiritual but not religious world picture because that's the term that people like to use, but I think that term is a misnomer because I think it makes a distinction that isn't real. I think most of the spirituality in this zone is religion. Even it just doesn't want to associate itself with certain traditional religious concepts. But this is the zone, this is a big zone, and it encompasses portions of institutional religion, it encompasses portions of liberal Protestantism, portions of sort of the most soft, seeker-sensitive megachurch evangelicalism, it encompasses a lot of prosperity theology, it encompasses figures like Joel Osteen, it encompasses the whole realm of the New Age movement, it encompasses Oprah Winfrey, it encompasses our next president, Marianne Williamson. Um, why do you laugh? And so it's a big zone. It encompasses a, a signal text as like a sort of emblematic text of this spiritual center is Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Eat, Pray, Love, which is sort of a St. Augustine's confessions for our time with a mix of sort of cultural tourism and genuine religious seeking that just doesn't end in any kind of submission to a larger religious tradition, but ends with a sort of effectively a religion of the God within. And that, I think that's where the American religious center right now really lies. That if you went back to the 1950s, you would say, to find the American religious center, you would pick a point somewhere in between Reinhold Niebuhr, Fulton Sheen, and Billy Graham, somewhere in there. And the same thing right now would be pick a point somewhere in between Oprah Winfrey, Joel Osteen, Dan Brown, and Elizabeth Gilbert. And that's, that's a change, right? And the core of the change is, again, this deinstitutionalization, right? So the spiritual center, unlike the secular worldview, totally believes in the supernatural, totally believes in the power of prayer, believes in angels and an afterlife and spiritual realities, believes that God can intervene to get you that promotion or that raise. It believes in that the power of positive thinking doesn't just affect your brain chemistry, but can actually deliver you through some spiritual effort, you know, that McMansion that you've always dreamed of, right? It's, uh, you know, a book like Rhonda Burns' The Secret, where you have this power to you know, you have a, a supernatural power within your spirit and your soul that lets you change the world. That's a sort of extreme manifestation of this worldview. So this is a religious worldview. It's a supernatural worldview. It believes in miracles and prayer and divine intervention. What it doesn't believe in, though, is authority. It doesn't believe in scriptural authority, or not definitively. I mean, it believes in the Bible. It might believe the Bible is the word of God in some way, and if you need to make a big life decision, you should really open the Bible at random and put your finger on a page, and God will tell you what to do. It believes in the Bible as a conduit of spiritual wisdom, but it doesn't believe in the Bible as an authority. It might believe in Roman Catholicism or any other traditional religious institution as a conveyor of spiritual wisdom a good place to hang out with your kids, um, a good place to say a prayer, but it doesn't believe in the authority of the Catholic Church's magisterium. It believes ultimately following a long American tradition, going back to Emerson and you know a million of his imitators in the 19th century, in the absolute religious authority of your innermost conscience and your innermost self, and a sort of deep, 
convergence between your true innermost self and whatever God he or she may be. That's, I think, the religious center in America right now. And then you have the remains of the old churches. And they, for all of their theological differences, they have discovered, I think, <laughs> that they have more in common than they would have believed 50 or 60 years ago because of their shared belief in authority. And so you can say there's a secular worldview, there's a spiritual worldview, and then there's a worldview that you can call traditional or biblical, although you know it encompasses communities, uh, Latter-day Saints and Orthodox Jews that have different scriptures than Christians. Um, but what binds these communities, what, what these communities have in common, again, for all of their differences, is a belief that God has delivered a revelation or revelations that creates binding rules and binding teachings for religious people. And that might be Sola Scriptura, it might be the Torah, it might be the Catholic Magisterium, but just the mere idea of authority is a, both a common ground for these traditions, but also something that separates that perspective from where the spiritual center lies and where secular America is. So that's, I think, a basic geography of religion in America in the year of our Lord 2019. Uh, and I think it explains, it's a, it's a useful way, I think, of thinking about recent changes in religious life, that a lot of what's, what we talk about when we talk about sort of the recent wave of secularization is a kind of bleed of people who are in the traditional category but lukewarm into the spiritual category, and then to some extent a bleed of people in the spiritual category into the secular category. So there's been a sort of shift over the last 20 years that has weakened the position of the sort of traditional scriptural authority-based forms of religious faith. But then you can also see, I think, a lot of culture war battles as battles between the traditional and the secular with the spiritual as the kind of mediating zone. So on an issue like same-sex marriage, the traditional side lost the battle completely because the case for same-sex marriage aligned perfectly with the basic theological premise of the spiritual center. If your basic spirit view is that the God within is the God that matters, then the case that someone shouldn't be able to marry the person of whatever sex that they love collapses very quickly. And so the traditional perspective was ended up completely isolated in that debate. Abortion is more complicated because it creates conflicting selves, conflicting identities, conflicting rights. And so the spiritual center is itself deeply conflicted on abortion, which is why the abortion debate has changed so little over the last 20 or 30 years relative to the same-sex marriage debate. Debates over religious liberty. Basically, the people in the spiritual zone tend to swing one way or another depending on who seems like the oppressor. So if it seems like secularists are being mean to uh, you know, a Catholic adoption agency, then people in the spiritual center might have enough residual affection for connection to Christian churches to side with the traditional against the secular. But if it's seen as traditional religious people being bigoted or discriminatory or homophobic, then the 
sympathy swings the other way. And, and presidents, too, sort of approach this in different ways. I mean, Donald Trump, I think, in his own particular Norman Vincent Peale minus <laughs> some of the theology kind of way, represents himself as a man of the spiritual center who's there to fight for the traditionally religious, even though he sort of acknowledges that he's not really one of them, one of us. Barack Obama presented himself as a, similarly, I think, a figure who sort of bridged the more institutionalized forms of spiritual America with secular America and sort of moved back and forth naturally between those two worlds and left the more traditionally religious isolated. And it'll be interesting to see how religious politics plays out over the next few presidencies, assuming the republic doesn't collapse before then. Uh, but I think this basic dynamic is really useful for understanding how culture war debates are playing out right now. But the really interesting question is, you know, I've just described a change, 50 years of change that created this new landscape. Well, how might this new landscape change? And, you know, I think you can tell a plausible and from a Catholic point of view, pessimistic story where the basic trends of post-60s Western life just accelerate. And the internet accelerates them even further. The flight into virtual reality accelerates them even further. And society becomes more atomized, more hyper-individualized. And the center of gravity in American religion just shifts ever more towards the spiritual and the secular and away from any communal authority-based religious structures of which Catholicism is obviously one. So that's one pessimistic story. Another also somewhat pessimistic from a Catholic point of view story is that out of this spiritual center, you could develop a genuinely post-Christian religious faith. That, you know, right now, if you look at Marianne Williamson or Oprah or Osteen, they're all figures who have some connection to Christian spirituality. In my book, you know, I called us a nation of heretics, right? And I think the idea that the American religious center is filled with Christian heretics is a useful way of looking at American religion right now. But within that zone, there's a lot of stuff, new age stuff, occult stuff, pantheistic stuff, that's more functionally post-Christian. And if you got to a point where the secular elite became a little less secular and a little more spiritual, but didn't want to become Christian again, then you could imagine a world where between the spiritual America and the secular America, you have a marriage that produces a pantheistic or pagan America, a sort of full flowering of sort of Emerson plus 1970s occultism plus sophisticated philosophical pantheism plus 17 other things that really takes us to a radically new place that leaves traditional Christianity and all of Western monotheism much more culturally isolated and beset. So those are two scenarios. But then let's imagine, to bring us around to the promised opportunity, alternative scenarios, right? So what is the core weakness of the spiritual center? I think the core practical weakness is precisely its individualism. The same individualism that makes it intensely appealing to post-1960s Americans also 
dramatically weakens its ability to deliver, just forget about dogma and doctrine for a minute, the basic social and communal goods that American Christianity has historically delivered. The, you know, the story of the deinstitutionalization of American religion starts out as a story of liberation and spiritual experiments and mixing and matching religious traditions and, you know, but it could end with isolation, loneliness, the collapse of community, and what we certainly see around the edges of American life right now, a kind of deep spiritual despair. And to the extent that that's the ultimate trajectory of a kind of deinstitutionalized, post-authority based semi-Christianity, then I think that creates an incredibly large space that the great virtues of, I think, any institutional form of Christian faith, but the Catholic form particularly, are very well suited to fill, that Catholicism more in many ways than Protestantism is a deeply communitarian religion, a religion with incredibly long and rich traditions, not just of happy, stable families, but of religious communities built around helping people otherwise isolated and broken and divided, people who need, who need spiritual homes that their own families and their own lives haven't supplied. And not only in monasticism and religious orders, but also in sort of more ad hoc and um, casual and impermanent forms, the history of Catholicism is filled with forms of religious community that I think are ripe for adaptation and advancement in the possible sort of post-community wasteland of American culture over the next 50 or 100 years. And there are all kinds of ways in which Catholicism doesn't really seem ready to meet that responsibility, but that doesn't mean it can't. It doesn't mean that the seeds of responses to a crisis of community aren't being planted right now. It doesn't mean that small experiments in communal living that younger Catholics are adapting and adopting at the moment can't blossom into something that has appeal beyond what counts as Catholic culture right now. So I think there's a clear way in which the trajectory of the spiritual center could leave people looking for exactly the things, community, authority, even, dare I say it, hierarchy, that led people to reject Catholicism in an earlier generation. So that's one opportunity. And then the other opportunity is a more, I think it's more of an intellectual one, which is that leave the spiritual center for a moment and walk over to the secular world picture. The secular world picture, you know, the, the world of the American elite is socially in much better shape than the world of the great American middle. Doesn't mean that it's filled with perfect happiness in every way, but it's richer and more comfortable and families are more stable and so on. It doesn't, there isn't the same crisis of community um, in Brooklyn or the Upper West Side or Los Angeles right now that there is in parts of the American heartland. But what I think is palpable and obvious in the secular world picture is a deep intellectual incoherence. 
the secular world picture wants to simultaneously sustain a deeply moralistic idealism that rests inherently on a metaphysical conception of human rights and the human person. But it wants to marry that to a deeply materialistic, hard Darwinian picture of what human beings are and the limits, or depending on what happens with transhumanism, I guess, not the limits on what they could become. And there's a deep contradiction there, and a lot of smart people have tried to paper it over, but the basic contradiction remains, that if you drain out Christian metaphysics and try to sustain ultimately Christian ideas about equality and justice and human rights, you have a world picture that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And there are a lot of ways to resolve that contradiction. And the sort of story about a new pantheism or a new paganism that I just told is one possible way to resolve that contradiction. But it is the case that whatever the difficulties that people have believing in Catholic teaching in 2019 in the Western world, the Catholic world picture, you know, there are flaws and limits and arguments around the edges, but it has a basic coherence in what it says human beings are and what it says the universe is. And that plausibility has not disappeared. And in certain ways, I think, you know, and I'm being a bit of a Catholic chauvinist here, but I think it's in certain ways only been strengthened by the intellectual difficulties that a purely secular liberalism keeps running into. So I think there is a clear intellectual opportunity for Catholicism in that incoherence of the world picture that governs the most potent, powerful, and elite circles of our culture right now. And the big impediment to the Catholic world picture somehow supplanting the secular world picture is this deep secular hostility to the idea of the supernatural. And, you know, the Catholic world picture is coherent, but it includes a lot of miracles, right? It includes a lot of things that people who've embraced the secular world picture naturally recoil at. And that, again, brings me back, and I'll just end here where I began, with that seems like secularism's strength. That's its great defense against a return of the religious, let alone a return of Catholicism that the religious requires belief in a breaking in to material existence that seems incredible to many, many smart people in our culture right now. But the reality is that that breaking in happens. It's happened before, happens all the time, it happened in my own family's life, it happens in positive ways, it happens in dark ways, and you have to call an exorcist. And we don't know exactly how it's going to happen in the immediate future or the long-term future, but the fact that it will continue to happen in some form means that at a fundamental level, even when it looks its strongest, secularism is always and permanently fatally weak. Thank you so much. New York Times columnist and best-selling author Ross Douthat recorded in September 2019. He spoke as part of the St. John Paul II Lecture Series, sponsored by the Archdiocese of Denver. If you haven't yet done so, we invite you to subscribe to the Notable Speeches podcast. 
Search for Notable Speeches in the podcast app you prefer. And if your app allows you to rate podcasts, we hope you'll give us a good rating. To make a comment or offer a suggestion, send an email to this address, feedback at notablespeeches.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at Notable Speeches. Notable Speeches.